The Free Library of Philadelphia is proud to present a podcast from our author event series, recorded live at the Central Library on the Benjamin Franklin Parkway. To learn more about the Free Library, the Central Library Expansion Project, and how your contribution can help our programs and services for the community, please visit freelibrary.org. Please welcome David Foster Wallace. Where's Tom? Two things, um, faux pas that, that I regularly commit. Um, the protocol is that you're supposed, to, you're supposed to read a little bit, but also strategically look up to form a kind of intimate communion with the audience. If I do that, particularly when I'm nervous, I lose the place on the page. So I will not be looking up. But I'm, I'm very aware that you're here, trust me. Um, the, the other is that um, I, don't know if you, I don't know if you guys suffer from this phenomenon. When I can tell that the person on stage is nervous, I get nervous for him. It's a horrible feeling. Um, and I'm, I will be really nervous for the first two or three minutes. Um, but don't fret, because the minute I forget about myself and get interested in what I'm doing, it goes away. So I just wanted to let you know we'll all be fine. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the stuff in this book is too long um, to read out loud. So I'm going to read a snippet from, from one of the longer pieces. And then maybe if, maybe if there's time, read, read one short one. I, I wanted to tell you that this is... Uh, the, the excerpt that I'm going to read is from a long story that's set in a fourth grade classroom in Columbus, Ohio. And the narrator is kind of a kid in the classroom, but he's also sometimes an adult sort of looking back. Um, and in the story, some really dramatic, maybe even lurid stuff um, happens in the classroom. But, but it's basically a story about boredom, which I'm sure is, is, a, is a hard sell. Uh, uh, so more, more sort of the deep kind of boredom that's really a kind of despair. And for obvi- obvious reasons, I'm gonna, I will keep that excerpt short. For my own part, I had begun having nightmares about the reality of adult life as early as perhaps age seven. I knew even then that the dreams involved my father's life and job and the way he looked when he returned home from work at the end of the day. His arrival was always between 5.42 and 5.45, and it was usually I who was the first to see him come through the front door. What occurred was almost choreographic in its routine. He came in already turning in order to press the door closed behind him. He removed his hat and topcoat and hung the coat in the foyer closet, clawed his necktie loose with two fingers, took the green rubber band off the dispatch, entered the living room, greeted my brother, and sat down with the newspaper to wait for my mother to bring him a highball. The nightmares themselves always opened with a wide-angle view of a number of men at desks in rows in a large, brightly lit room or hall. The desks were arranged in precise rows and columns like the desks of an R.B. Hayes classroom, but these were all more like the large gray steel desks that the teachers had at the front of the room, and there were many, many more of them, perhaps a hundred or more, each occupied by a man in suit and tie. If there were windows, I do not remember noticing them. Some of the men were older than others, but they were all obviously adults, people who drove and applied for insurance coverage 
and had highballs while they read the paper before dinner. The nightmare's room was at least the size of a soccer or flag football field. It was utterly silent and had a large clock on each wall. It was also very bright. In the foyer, turning from the front door while his left hand rose to remove his hat, my father's eyes appeared lightless and dead, empty of everything we associated with his real persona. He was a kind, decent, ordinary-looking man. His voice was deeply pitched but not resonant. Soft-spoken, he had a sense of humor that kept his natural reserve from seeming remote or aloof. Even when my brother and I were small, we were aware that he spent more time with us and took the trouble to show us that we were important to him a good deal more than most fathers of that era did. It was many years before I had any real idea, any real idea of how our mother felt about him. The foyer was directly off the living room where the piano was, and at that time, I often read or played with my trucks outside of kicking range beneath the piano while my brother practiced his hannons, and I was often the first to register the sound of my father's key in the front door. It took only four steps and a brief sock slide into the foyer to be able to see him first as he entered on a wave of outside air. I remember the foyer as dim and cold and smelling of the coat closet, the bulk of which was filled with my mother's different coats and matching gloves. The front door was heavy and difficult to open and close, as if the foyer were somehow pressurized. The door had a small, diamond-shaped window in the center, though we later moved before I was ever tall enough to see out of it. He had to put his side into the door somewhat in order to make it close all the way, and I would not see his face until he turned to remove his hat and coat, but I can recall that the angle of his shoulders as he leaned into the door had the same quality as his eyes. I could not convey this quality now and most assuredly couldn't have then, but I know that it helped inform the nightmares. His face was not at all like this on weekends off. It is in hindsight that I believe the dreams to have been about adult life. At the time, I knew only their terror. Much of the difficulty they complained of in getting me to lie down and go to sleep at night was due to these dreams. Nor could it always have been dusk at 542, though that is what I recall its being, and the inrush of outside air he brought with him as cold and scented with burnt leaves and the sad way the street smelled at twilight when all of the houses became the same color and all of their porch lights came on like bulwarks against something without name. His eyes when he turned from the door didn't scare me, but the feeling was somehow related to being scared. Often I still had a truck in my hand. His hat went on the hat rack, his coat shouldered out of, then the coat was folded over his left arm, the closet opened with his right hand, the coat transferred to that hand while the third wooden hanger, coat hanger from the left is removed with his left hand. There was something about this routine that cast shadows deep down in parts of me I could not access on my own. I knew something of boredom by then, of course, at Hayes and Riverside or on Sunday afternoons when there was nothing to do, the fidgety type of childhood boredom that is more like worry than despair. But I do not believe I consciously connected the way my father looked at night with the far different and deeper soul-level boredom of his job which I knew was actuarial because in second grade everyone in Mrs. Claymore's homeroom had had to give a short presentation on what our father's profession was. I knew that insurance was protection that adults applied for in case of risk, and I knew that it had numbers in it because of the documents that were visible in his briefcase when I got to pop its latches and open it for him, 
and my brother and I had had the building that housed the insurance company's headquarters and my father's tiny window in its face pointed out to us by our mother from the car. But the actual specifics of his job were always vague, and they remained so for many years. Looking back, I suspect that there was something of a cover-your-eyes-and-stop-your-ears quality to my lack of curiosity about just what my father had to do all day. I can remember certain exciting narrative tableau based around the competitive, almost primitive connotations of the word breadwinner, which had been Mrs. Claymore's blanket term for our father's occupations. But I do not believe I knew or could even imagine as a child that for almost 30 years of 51 weeks a year, my father sat all day at a metal desk in a silent, fluorescent-lit room, reading forms and making calculations and filling out further forms on the results of those calculations, breaking only occasionally to answer his telephone or meet with other actuaries in other bright, quiet rooms. With only a small and sunless north window that looked out on other small office windows in other gray buildings. The nightmares were vivid and powerful, but they were not the kind from which you wake up crying and then have to try to explain to your mother when she comes what the dream was about so that she could reassure you that there was nothing like what you just dreamed in the real world. I knew that he liked to have music or a lively radio program on and audible all of the time at home or to hear my brother practicing while he read the dispatch before dinner. But I am certain I did not then connect this with the overwhelming silence he sat in all day. I did not know that our mother's making his lunch was one of the keystones of their marriage contract, or that in mild weather he took his lunch down in the elevator and ate it sitting on a backless stone bench that faced a small square of grass with two trees and an abstract public sculpture, and that on many mornings he steered by these 30 minutes outdoors the way mariners out of sight of land use stars. My father died of a coronary when I was 16, and I can acknowledge, despite the obvious shock and loss, that his passing was less hard to bear than much of what I learned about his life when he was gone. For instance, it was very important to my mother that my father's burial plot be somewhere where there were at least a few trees in view. And given the logistics of the cemetery and the details of the mortuary contract he'd prepared for them both, this caused a great deal of trouble and expense at a difficult time, which neither my brother nor I saw the point of until years later when we learned about his weekdays in the bench where he liked to eat his lunch. At Miranda's suggestion, I made a point one spring of visiting the site where his little square of grass and trees had been. The area had been refashioned into one of the small and largely unutilized downtown parks that were characteristic of the new Columbus renewal programs of the early 80s, in which there were no longer grass or beech trees, but a small, modern children's play area with wood chips instead of sand and a jungle gym made entirely of recycled tires. There is also a swing set whose two empty swings moved back and forth at different rates in the wind the whole time I sat there. For a time in my early adulthood, I had periods of imagining my father sitting on the bench year after year, chewing and looking at that carved-out square of something green, always knowing exactly how much time was left for lunch without taking his watch out. Sadder still was trying to imagine what he thought about as he sat there, imagining him perhaps thinking about us, our faces when he got home, or the way we smelled at night after baths when he came in to kiss us on the top of the head. But the truth is that I have no idea what he thought about, what his internal life might have been like, and that were he alive, I still would not know, or trying, 
which Miranda feels was saddest of all, to imagine what words he might have used to describe his job and the square and two trees to my mother. I knew my father well enough to know it could not have been direct. I am certain he never sat down or lay beside her and spoke as such about lunch on the bench and the twin sickly trees that in the fall drew swarms of migrating starlings, appearing all mass more like bees than birds as they swarmed in and weighed down the elms or buckeye's limbs and filled the mind with sound before rising again in a great mass to spread and contract like a great flexing hand against the downtown sky. Trying thus to imagine remarks and attitudes and tiny half-anecdotes that over time conveyed enough to her that she would go through hell and back to have his gravesite moved to the premium areas nearer the front gate in its little stand of blue pines. It was not quite a nightmare proper, but neither was it a daydream or fancy. It came when I had been in bed for a time and was beginning to fall asleep, but only partway there. The part of the feather fall into sleep in which whatever lines of thought you've been pursuing begin now to become surreal around the edges. And then at some point, the thoughts themselves are replaced by images and concrete pictures and scenes. You move gradually from merely thinking about something to experiencing it is really there, unfolding, a story or world you are part of. Although at the same time, enough of you remains awake to be able to discern on some level that what you are experiencing does not quite make sense, that you are on some cusp or edge of true dreaming. The dream was of a large room full of men in suits and ties seated at rows of great gray desks, bent forward over the papers on their desks, motionless, silent, in a monochrome room or hall under long banks of high-lumen fluorescence, the men's faces puffy and seamed with adult tension and wear and appearing to hang slightly loose, the way someone's face can go flaccid and loose when he seems to be staring at something without really seeing it. I acknowledge that I could never convey just what was so dreadful about this tableau of a bright, utterly silent room full of men immersed in rote work. It was the type of nightmare whose terror is less about what you see than about the feeling you have in your lower chest about what you're seeing. Some of the men wore glasses. There were a few small, neatly trimmed mustaches. Some had gray or thinning hair or the large, dark, complexly textured bags beneath their eyes that both our father and Uncle Gerald had. Some of the younger men had wider lapels. Most did not. Part of the terror of the dream's wide-angle perspective was that the men in the room appeared as both individuals and a great anonymous mass. There were at least 20 or 30 rows of a dozen desks each, each with a blotter and desk lamp and file folders with papers in them and a man in a straight-back chair behind the desk, each man with a subtly different style or pattern of necktie and his own slightly distinctive way of sitting and positioning his arms and inclining his head, some feeling at their jaw or forehead or the crease of their tie or biting dead skin from around their thumbnail or tracing along their lower lip with their pencils, eraser, or pen's metal cap. You could tell that the particular styles of sitting and the small, absent habits that individualized them had evolved over years or even decades of sitting like this over their job's work every day, moving purposefully only once in a while to turn a stapled page or to move a loose page from the left side of an open file folder to the right side, or to close one file folder and slide it a few inches away and then pull another file folder to themselves and open it, gazing down into it as if they were at some terrible height and the documents were the ground far below. If my brother dreamed, we certainly never heard about it. 
the men's expressions were somehow at once stuporous and anxious, enervated and keyed up, not so much fighting the urge to fidget as appearing to have long ago surrendered whatever hope or expectation causes one to fidget. A few of the chair's seat portions had cushions made of corduroy or serge, one or two of them brightly colored and edged with fringe in such a way that you could tell that they had been handmade by a loved one and given as a gift, perhaps for a birthday. And for some reason, this detail was the worst of all. The room's bright, the dream's bright room was death. I could feel it, but not in any way you could convey or explain to my mother if I cried out in fear and she hurried in. And the idea of ever trying to tell my father about the dream was, even later, after it had vanished as abruptly as the problem with reading, simply unthinkable. The feeling of telling him about it would have been like coming to our Aunt Tina, one of my mother's sisters, who among her other crosses to bear had been born with a cleft palate that operations had not much been able to help, besides also having a congenital lung condition, and pointing out the cleft palate to Aunt Tina and asking her how she felt about it and how her life had been affected by it, at which even imagining the look that would commit come into her eyes was unthinkable. The overall feeling was that these colorless, empty-eyed, long-suffering faces were the face of some death that awaited me long before I stopped walking around. Then, when real sleep descended, it becomes a real dream, and I lost the perspective of someone merely looking at the scene and am in it. The lens of perspective pulls suddenly back, and I am one of them, one part of the mass of gray-faced men stifling coughs and feeling at their teeth with their tongues and folding the edges of papers down into complex accordion creases and then smoothing them carefully out once more before replacing them in their assigned file folders. And the dream's perspective's view slowly moves further and further in until it is primarily me in view, in close-up, with a handful of other desks, men's faces, and upper bodies framing me, and the backs of a few photos frames, and either an adding machine or a telephone at the edge of the desk. Mine is also one of the chairs with a handmade cushion. As I can recall it now, in the dream I look neither like my father nor my real self. I have very little hair, and what I do have is wet combed carefully around the sides, and a small Van Dyke or maybe goatee, and my face, which is angled downwards at the desktop in concentration, looks as if it has spent the last 20 years pressed hard against something unyielding. And at a certain point in the interval, there is no sound. In the middle of removing a paperclip or opening a desk drawer, I look up and into the lens of the dream's perspective and stare back at myself, but without any sign of recognition on my face, nor of happiness or fright or despair or appeal. The eyes are flat and opaque, and only mine in the way that a very old album's photo of you as a child in a setting you have no memory of is nevertheless you. And in the dream, as our eyes meet, it is impossible to know what the adult me is seeing or how I am reacting or if there is anything in there at all. Seven or eight more minutes? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's the end of So maybe since only one person is leaving, I will read one other one that's only, sorry, that's, that's cruel, um, that's only two and a half pages long. A really, really funny story uh, called Incarnations of Burned Children. 
The daddy was around the side of the house hanging a door for the tenant when he heard the child's screams and the mommy's voice gone high between them. He could move fast, and the back porch gave onto the kitchen, and before the screen door had banged shut behind him, the daddy had taken the scene in whole. The overturned pot on the floor tile before the stove and the burner's blue jet and the floor's pool of water still steaming as its many arms extended, the toddler in his baggy diaper standing rigid with steam coming off his hair and his chest and shoulders scarlet and his eyes rolled up and mouth opened very wide and seeming somehow separate from the sounds that issued, the mommy down on one knee with the dish rag dabbing pointlessly at him and matching the screams with cries of her own, hysterical so she was almost frozen. Her one knee and the bare little soft feet were still in the steaming pool, and the daddy's first act was to take the child under his arms and lift him away from it and take him to the sink, where he threw out plates and struck the tap to let cold well water run over the boy's feet while with his cupped hand he gathered and poured or flung more cold water over the head and shoulders and chest, wanting first to see the steam stop coming off him, the mommy over his shoulder invoking God until he sent her for towels and gauze if they had it, the daddy moving quickly and well and his man's mind empty of everything but purpose, not yet aware of how smoothly he moved or that he'd ceased to hear the high screams because to hear them would freeze him and make impossible what had to be done to help his child, whose screams were regular as breath and went on so long they'd become already a thing in the kitchen, something else to move quickly around. The tenant's side's door outside hung half off its top hinge and moved slightly in the wind, and a bird in the oak across the driveway appeared to observe the door with a cocked head as the cries still came from inside. The worst scald seemed to be the right arm and shoulder. The chest and stomach's red was fading to pink under the cold water, and his feet soft soles weren't blistered that the daddy could see. But the toddler still made little fists and screamed, except maybe now merely on reflex from fear. The daddy would know he thought it possible later. Small face distended and thready veins standing out at the temples, and the daddy kept saying he was here, he was here. Adrenaline ebbing and an anger at the mommy for allowing this thing to happen, just starting to gather in wisps at his mind's extreme rear, still hours from expression. When the mommy returned, he wasn't sure whether to wrap the child in a towel or not, but he wet the towel down and did, swaddled him tight and lifted his baby out of the sink and set him on the kitchen table's edge to soothe him while the mommy tried him while the, while the mommy tried to check the feet soles with one hand waving around in the area of her mouth and uttering objectless words while the daddy bent in and was face to face with the child on the table's checked edge, repeating the fact that he was here and trying to calm the toddler's cries, but still the child breathlessly screamed, a high, pure, shining sound that could stop his heart and his bitty lips and gums now tinged with the light blue of a low flame, the daddy thought, screaming as if almost still under the tilted pot in pain. A minute, two like this that seemed much longer, with the mommy at the daddy's side talking sing-song at the child's face and the lark on the limb with its head to the side and the hinge going white in a line from the weight of the canted door until the first seen wisp of steam came lazy from under the wrapped towel's hem and the parent's eyes met and widened. The diaper, which when they opened the towel and leaned their little boy back on the checkered cloth and unfastened the softened tabs and tried to remove it, resisted slightly with new high cries and was hot. Their baby's diaper burned their hand, and they saw where the real water had fallen and pooled and been burning their baby boy all this time while he screamed for them to help him, and they hadn't, hadn't thought. And when they got it off and saw the state of what was there, the mommy said their God's first name and grabbed the table, 
to keep her feet while the father turned away and threw a haymaker at the air of the kitchen and cursed both himself and the world for not the last time while the child might now have been sleeping if not for the rate of his breathing and the tiny stricken motions of his hands in the air above where he lay. Hands the size of a grown man's thumb that had clutched the daddy's thumb in the crib while he'd watched the daddy's mouth moving in song. His head cocked and seeming to see way past him into something his eyes made the daddy lonesome for in a sideways way. If you've never wept and want to, have a child. Break your heart inside and something will it Break your heart inside and something will a child is the twangy song the daddy hears again as if the radio's lady was almost there with him looking down at what they'd done. Though hours later what the daddy most won't forgive is how badly he wanted a cigarette right then as they diapered the child as best they could in a gauze and two crossed hand towels and the daddy lifted him like a newborn with his skull in one palm and ran him out to the hot truck and burned custom rubber all the way to town in the clinic's ER with the tenant's door hanging open like that all day until the hinge gave, but by then it was too late. When it wouldn't stop and they couldn't make it, the child had learned to leave himself and watch the whole rest unfold from a point overhead. And whatever was lost never thenceforth mattered. And the child's body expanded and walked about and drew pay and lived its life untenanted, a thing among things, its self-soul so much vapor aloft, falling as rain and then rising the sun up and down like a yo-yo. That, that's all I'm going to read. So thanks a lot for coming. Hi. At this point, we'll have a Q&A, and we've got people running around, uh, running around with mics. If you would please raise your hand, I'll point you out. They'll get a mic to you, and please wait for them. Gentleman in front right here. Hi. Um, I'm wondering uh, if you've ever read any, uh, been exposed to, like, anthropology, ethnography, because your stories, uh, your writing in general, seems to be so much about observations of what's going on, like in the one you just read about the hinge and, you know, just the sort of taking in, uh, apprehending all that's there, but then you also sort of add a lot of, um, you know, psychological consciousness and all that kind of stuff. So I'm just wondering if you if you know anything or been exposed to much sort of anthropo anthropology, ethnography. I'm wondering why I'm, um, why a surfeit of detail is is related to anthropology somehow. Well, it, I'm not saying it's the it's that it's. Oh yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, anthropology doesn't have any kind of uh, claim on detail. I guess um, it your writing seems to be. Uh, at times read to me like I've been taught to write like field notes, sort of just taking in all that's there. Um, and, and then the thing I think that is, you add is significance or to it. So I, I guess that's what I'm wondering. I'm just, I mean, I'm not saying that it's the purview of, of anthropology to have detail. And I wasn't saying that you were yeah. saying that. No, I'm just wondering, I'm just wondering if, you've, if, you've, if you've been exposed to it at all or thought about it at all. I think what seems like a surfeit of detail is maybe not so much the detail as sometimes the, um, Sometimes I take the commas out and it starts going really fast and it almost seems like kind of a little kid. You know how little kids will list every single thing that's going on in their mind. So it probably has more to do with speed. Than, I mean, I've read, you know, I've, 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 I've read like a civilian kind of some anthropology stuff, but I'm sure not a scholar of it. So that makes sense. Other question? Gentleman in the middle here. Please wait for the mic, sir. Uh, hi, Mr. Wallace. Um, you've published a couple of things under pseudonyms, including one of the stories in your present collection, Mr. Squishy, was uh, was published under the name Elizabeth Clem. And yet you write 
and I mean this fully as a compliment, you write in such a di distinctive style that the reaction people seemed to get was not who is this new writer, but why is David Foster Wallace writing under this transparent pseudonym? <laughs> so, and I'm, I don't mean at all to put you on the spot, but I'm curious why you've chosen to do that. Um, partly because I'm because I'm dumb and out of touch, and um, the the I I for a while had was working on a whole cycle by this sort of pseudonymous author, and had the idea that that doing it pseudonymously and kind of cross genderishly would so totally change the writing that people would have no idea. And I thought it was this really cool experiment. And not only did like three out of the four of the pieces really kind of suck, but but in fact, yeah, I mean, it, this thing came out of McSweeney's, and I, apparently poor Eggers had promised me he wouldn't tell who it was, and it was just a, so obvious that he was put in lame position after lame position while people just, so. It was just basically stupidity on my part. Gentleman back here on the right. Hi, could you talk a little bit about uh, everything and more? I, I guess the context of what you had to do to get yourself versed enough in mathematics to talk intelligently about Cantor. He's, he's talking about a, a nonfiction book about the uh, Norton and Atlas books are doing this series of non-scientists writing about science. I had had, um, I, I, I had kind of a weird double major in college. I'd had some of this stuff before and uh, thought I could knock this thing off in a couple months and it would be real easy. And it turned out, yeah, I mean, basically just uh, I had to read a whole lot and actually look for really embarrassing notebooks from when I was 20 and 21, I mean, mostly just on set theory. But there, it turns out, um, it, it turns out the math genre. There are pop math books, and then there are really hard textbooks. There's this whole middle range, um, particularly histories of mathematics, like Morris Klein's History of Mathematical Thought. That's just incredibly good. And if you can sit there and read the whole thing, you end up getting, you know, a, a terrific liberal arts education just from sitting. So I, so I use those pretty heavily. Another question right back here. Could you talk a little bit about the relationship in your work between uh, nonfiction and fiction? Uh, it's a very general question, but I, I remember once Tom Wolf said that uh, a lot of fiction is, uh, is the result of a huge amount of research, just like nonfiction. I, the, weird, the, the weird thing is I, don't, I consider myself mainly a fiction writer. I got into nonfiction in this weird sideways way that involved mostly being really poor and having a Harper's editor take pity on me. Um, so uh, probably I don't have a very sophisticated understanding of the relationship between the two. I know that in nonfiction they have fact checkers and <laughs> that, and you know, they do whole movies about, you know, bad journalists who make stuff up. So it's actually, if, well, except nobody ever explains to you when they hire you as a fiction writer to go describe something, all of a sudden you hear, you get these calls from fact checkers who have no sense of humor whatsoever. Um, and uh, the, only, the only connection that I understand kind of in my tummy when I'm doing it is that both, both, at least the kinds I do, depend very heavily on there being a narrator and the narrator kind of seeming like a human being who's talking to you. And probably one of the reasons why the kind of nonfiction I do is kind of limited or I can't do a whole lot of it is that, the, the, it, at least to me, it's now sort of seeming like a shtick. Like you've got, you know, the schmucky narrator who comes in and he's going to talk about something, but ooh, he's also got his own neuroses that he's going to talk about and all this stuff, which, which in fiction writing is fairly standard. N not a whole lot of people had seemed like they'd done it before 
in nonfiction, and for a while it seemed very exciting, and now it's feeling to me kind of like a tick. Um, I will, of course, continue to do it. It's just <laughs> not, not quite as interesting. as All the way in the back row in the middle there. Please wait for the mic. You ever heard of um, some of the stuff you were talking about, reading on the book? Mr. What's your name? Mr. David, right? Mr. David what? Foley? Well, I, I don't, I don't, this is my first time, you know, over here, down here. But, talk um, a little slower. Okay, this, is my, can... this is my first time over here. Uh-huh. Um, I used to, I used, I, you know, so I have a friend of mine's, um, she, 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 she reads pretty good, right? But I forgot her name, I forgot her name. And she's like Irish, Sweden, something like that. And she told me about William Shakespeare. And I, and I looked up, and I went to the library right up on, um, on the other side of South Philly. And, and it was in Star Wars, William Shakespeare in Star Wars. It was a Star Wars book, but it had William, all William Shakespeare's um, writing. Um, writing. Wait, I wait mean, a minute, a book know. about Star Wars, but it, but it was like Shakespeare? No, no, I'm just it trying to understand. It's like, it's, more like, it's like the outcome of the second book. That second book you just read, I don't know the name of it. I never looked. But I'm just saying. Do you have a specific question, sir? Yeah. I just like, I just like, this. I like the first book, sir. I don't know. The, what's the name of the first book? The name, name of the first book you read. Name of oh, the first book you read. The, 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 the name of the first story is The Soul is Not a Smithy. Yes, yeah, Soul is Not a Smithy. That's a, that's, 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 that's a nice, nicer book. And what's the, what's the second book, sir? We have another question. Second Second one's title is Incarnations of Burned Children. Sorry, I didn't, yeah, I didn't make the titles real clear. Thank you. Is there another question? All on, oh, we've got somebody down in front here. Um, I get in arguments with my father <laughs> about, your, about your writing. Oh, I cannot stand this. Um, this Q&A is kind of taking a turn, isn't it? No, I just never spoke. I didn't even have, like, Mr. Microphone. This is just horrible. Yeah, no, no, no it's horrible. Um, yeah, um, he thinks, I mean, he always, it's like he thinks your writing is too tied to this specific time period. And I would imagine that you get that, especially from maybe people who are a little bit older. I mean... I think my feeling is that, you know, he doesn't really, I mean, I think I have a different vision of the future than he does. Um, has, have people asked you about that or, I mean, just as far as the cultural, pop culture references. Um. No, no, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. Um, some of this has to do with, I remember thinking a lot about, there was a, I went to, briefly to grad school for, for writing like in the middle 80s. And um, the profs were maybe late 40s and we're all in our early 20s. And I remember um, get a, a few of us getting in kind of big arguments with them in class about because their belief was that any pop cultural reference was, was kind of eo ipso vapid, silly, dated the story, rendered it, um, rendered it part of low culture rather than the high culture whose whole purpose was to redeem us from the crap the com- and and I, I can, it, it was a it was a really important fight for me because both sides were really earnest and it was in good faith. We really were reading completely differently. The older professors were reading 
references to, say, brands of snack or what was on somebody's T-shirt as little affected ticks by which we were trying to somehow, I don't know, wink and nudge at other people our age. And at, at least in my own case, I know um, that particularly when I was young, I was doing it partly because that, that was the world I knew, you know, the same way the romantics wrote about, you know, babbling brooks and, and floating clouds. And, and there was this way, it was a very, well, no, it, there was a very interesting argument because both, because there was, the, it so quickly got down to bedrock that both people saw the world so very, very differently and read so very, very differently. Um, I know that they, I, get a, I, get, I get a fair number of questions like that, particularly in the mail, some of which are nice and some of which aren't so nice. They, there, tends to be, there tend to be more aesthetic questions about what should the relationship between literary fiction and pop culture be. Or there are other ones where basically, basically the stuff you're doing is just trendy and ticky and weird. And some people right now whose nerve endings are fried by MTV might be kind of interested in it, but it's going to die. Right? I mean, those are sort of the two directions. They're both really interesting to me because I'm now 42, and I, do, I don't notice it so much in fiction and poetry, but, for instance, when I turn on the television or go to movies that are geared toward a younger demographic and I see all the flash cutting and, and, and the loudness of the music, and I begin to feel what I imagine some of the profs and, or it's like some of what our father's generation feels is it is true that fashions change and audiences' receptivities change, and there's this feeling of... Um, that, that I'm getting right now of what the culture is interested in, where its attention wants to go is kind of passing me by. And it's clear that there's two, there's two responses. I can be sad and depressed and feel sorry for myself, which is pretty easy for me. Or I can rail against, by God, in my day, fiction, you know, art was engaged in this sort of way and required, and look at the way the world's going to hell in a handbasket, which, of course, is exactly what, you know, my father's generation was saying. So my guess, and I'm sorry about the lengthiness of the argument, is that this is a very cool argument, one that you may very well be having with your children, and that, that will be weird. Another question in the front row here. Uh, what, what current authors are you now reading, and uh, if you would, evaluate them? A lot, of the, a lot of the stuff that I read doesn't necessarily have much to do with the stuff that I like. My, my holy trinity of American writers is Cynthia Ozick, um, Cormac McCarthy, and Don DeLillo, um, who are all extremely different, um, but all seem to me to be pretty much the best fiction minds at work in America today. Um, I, in, or, in order to talk about them up here, I'd have to resort to blurb speak, which is boring, but, but those are kind of my dig three. Dennis, Dennis, with Dennis Johnson coming up very, very hard as fourth. Uh, gentleman right there in the red stripes, right? I have uh, two questions. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, one, what are you doing now, uh, writing-wise? And also, how has the transition been from living in Illinois to living in Los Angeles? Um, number one, let, um, trying to trying to work on a on a piece of nonfiction <laughs> that that's sure to be very interesting. The other, the <laughs> that um, that. He's alluding to, I, I, I got a teaching job. I didn't much want to move to Southern California. I got a teaching job. It's just such a good teaching job. It's like winning the lottery. So I moved. I, um, there are things about it I like. I like the little town I'm in. Southern California is extremely urban. Um, and I lived in Boston very briefly. But for the most part, I don't, I'm not familiar with urban areas. And there are a lot of adjustments, just the sheer number of human beings 
um, in view all the time. The interesting thing about coming here, I, I don't notice it in Philly, but I've been in New York maybe 10 times in my life, is there, there are clearly, there are defenses one learns to live and be comfortable around a whole lot of people. There's that New York privacy bubble around people. You don't, you don't meet people's eyes on the sidewalk in New York if you don't know them, whereas at home you do. But if you do it here, you're puncturing some kind of, something important to them, right? I guess because if they meet the eyes of everybody who passes them, they get home and pass out because it's just, <laughs> it's too much of a strain. I imagine, I imagine it's some, somewhat the same in Philadelphia. It's, it's very interesting, but it's, if your nervous system isn't geared toward dense human populations, it's very strange to live in it. Traffic being a whole other issue. I just wanted to ask, why did Infinite Jest end the way it did? <laughs> Footnote. No, I'm just kidding. I won't. I, I was interested in something that was more like two lines that were almost parallel but not parallel, and they meet somewhere, but that they not necessarily meet with, within the actual frame of the narrative. My... The thing went through a number of different incarnations. My, my hope was that, was that a, an, a close, attentive reading would give one a reasonably good idea of how various plots were going to resolve. I, I, yeah, that, that's, the, that's the least weird thing that I could say, probably. Uh, let's see. All the way in the back on this side. One of them with his hand up. Hi, it's another infinite jest question. I was just wondering, why couldn't Hal communicate at the beginning? Was it the moss or? That's it. <laughs> no, this is, I mean, it's weird. Uh, to some extent, I'm not sure how many people are, are interested in this question or the answer. Here's, here's a diplomatic answer. There are, there are between three and five possible explanations for that. If the, if the book's set up right, any one of which is not implausible and not wholly uninteresting. Why don't we, why don't we end it without ending it right there? Um, please join us upstairs for the book signing. And, there's a, and please thank David Foster Wallace. Thank you for coming. Also, just to let you know, before you head out uh, at Big Jar Books tonight, there's going to be an after party. Big Jar is at 2nd Street, the exact address. 55 North 2nd Street. There will be beverages. Thank you. Thank you for listening to a podcast from the Free Library's author event series. If you live in Philadelphia or are planning a visit and would like to attend an author event, information is available at freelibrary.org.